1776, Thomas Paine, American Revolution hero, stated the following about the price of freedom. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. And he knew of what he spoke. The freedom that we enjoy in our country, despite the ongoing attempts to take it away from us, was initially paid for by 56 courageous men who signed their own death certificates by putting their names on the Declaration of Independence. They took a public stand against the tyranny of England and paid a steep price for their conviction. Consider the following that we know from history. Five of these men were captured, tortured, and executed by the British. Nine more died in the Revolutionary War. Twelve more lost their homes. They were ransacked, looted, and burned to the ground. Two more lost their sons in battle. And one had two sons who, was, who were captured and tortured. The price, of, the price of freedom for these men was high, but it was considered worth paying by men who understood a bigger picture. And in a similar manner, but on the grandest scale of them all, we're told in Scripture that Jesus endured the pain and despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. That joy for those who would recognize that they were sinners, who would repent from sin and turn to God and respond with faith to the finished work of Christ, His death, substitutionary death upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead, that those who would believe that would be reconciled to God and would no longer be under the wrath or curse of sin and judgment and condemnation. This message entrusted to those who believe is to be proclaimed to the world, for it is the only message of hope that God has given to mankind. Shortly after World War II, at the invitation of the Harrow School, Sir Winston Churchill was invited to deliver a commencement address to their graduating class. And as you can imagine, the crowd was just electric because of the presence of this man who, through his bravery, endured the wrath of Nazi Germany and single-handedly almost brought together not only the community of, of England and London, but those who were his allies. And he stood up to the tyranny of what was going on at that time. And as he approached the podium, you could hear a pin drop for everyone was waiting longingly to hear what Sir Winston Churchill had to say. And as he stood at the podium, he looked out at his audience and he said to them these words, never, never, never give in. Never give in. And he went and he took a seat. That was his entire message. And as I thought about that message, I thought, in much the same manner, we are to never, 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 never give in. To those who oppose God's truth and would try to silence the message. The passage in Hebrews that I just quoted goes on to say, For consider Him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured such hostility by men, so that you may not grow weary, and that you may not lose heart. 
the supreme Christian examples of those who courageously, despite all opposition, continue to proclaim God's message of reconciliation comes to us from the early church. In Acts chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles, turn there because it shows us the consistently courageous attitude of the apostles in their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ through thick and thin. Specifically, the first missionaries bravely held to their purpose of preaching Christ despite extreme temptations. And their valiant and steadfast attitude is a great model for each of us. So as we look at Acts chapter 14... We will see what it means as God's messengers to develop an attitude that says never, never, never give in to the temptation of being silent as to the message, the only message of hope that God has given to the world. In Acts chapter 14, we'll start with verse 1, we read these words. And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. You know, Paul and Barnabas have already demonstrated for those who have been with us and have been through the study so far, they've already demonstrated their bravery on this first missionary journey. Uh, It was almost as if it was Paul and Barnabas and God against the world. You know, on Cyprus, they gallantly preached the gospel with no response except indifference, and indifference is no different than rejection. In in, uh, Paphos, they finally had a convert, but only after a fierce battle that had taken place with a magician at that time, a wizard that we're told, and finally Christ had won over this man's heart. It says in Asia Minor, it was all too much for John Mark, who returned home from there. The battle continued to rage. We know that Paul had contracted some form of disease, possibly malaria. In Pisidian Antioch, they again ministered the word with great effect. There were many who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there was also tremendous division that led them to the point where they took off their sandals and they dusted off the dust of their shoes and they moved to the next location, the next destination. And this is where they headed, for a city called Iconium. It was 80 miles um, southeast if they were traveling from the previous city. And on this particular journey, they go to, they're going to go to Iconium first, then Lystra, then Derby, and then they're going to end up going back home from the church that had sent them out to tell the world about Jesus Christ. In Iconium, uh, where they first land, we find it again, as is often the case, it, they had mixed reviews. There was division that took place, as we've already noted through the passage, in this particular city. Now, Iconium was an ancient city that claimed to be older than Damascus. Uh, In fact, in the dim past, they had a king by the name of Nanakis, and the phrase, since the days of Nanakis, was proverbial for from the beginning of time. Uh, There was no large Roman garrisons there. The town was mostly Greek as far as attitude was concerned, and it was somewhat resistant to Roman authority, and the Roman government didn't send many troops to this particular area. Uh, They were governed by an assembly that were called the Demos, or a council, a town council of the citizens that were there, and they kind of held themselves aloof to any other authority. Well, it was here that these missionaries uh, were met with immediate success, and as we saw, they also were met with immediate opposition. 
there were three qualities that stood out as I was going through the passage as it relates to developing an attitude. That never, 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 never give in type of attitude that were true of these men that I want us to consider as well. Because I will guarantee you that if you have been faithful recently to take advantage of the opportunities that have presented themselves through the events that have transpired in our country and in the world over the last couple of weeks, you have noted that there will be people who will be very receptive what it is that you have to say, and there will be others who reject what it is you have to say categorically. But the opportunities exist nonetheless. And that attitude of never, never, never give in to share with people around us God's plan for man, we are in a very strategic time in the history of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that and understand that. The first thing that I noted that kind of jumped off was as they came into Iconium, notice in verse 1, we're told that they spoke. They spoke, and and you can't miss that. They spoke. Now, they spoke to the people that were assembled there. And we read in uh, the New American Standard, for example, it says they spoke in such a manner. Some translations have it, they spoke so effectively that a great multitude of both the Jews and the Gentiles believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They spoke. We must never, ever forget the seemingly obvious. In order for others to put their faith and trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, they must first hear about Him. And in order to hear about him, someone must be sent to speak to them about him. And then once we are presented with the opportunity, what must be said is found in the word of God. The doctrine of man, that God created man, that God created the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hoovered, hovered over the surface of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. That God created the universe. And we go on to know that God created man in His image and His likeness. And yet man was tragically separated from the image and likeness of God, and that God had made a command to man, specifically Adam, that was violated and broken. Adam chose to disobey God, and because of that disobedience, sin entered into the world. And with sin came judgment. And the judgment of God was, the day that you eat or disobey me, you shall surely die. That is, death is a separation spiritually from that fellowship with God. That separation physically, ultimately, from our bodies because of the physical consequence of death, because of the symptom or the root problem of sin. The Bible says that we are separated, condemned by God, that there's tremendous despair because of that, and that's the bad news. They spoke so effectively or in such a manner that many believed or understood what they said because they clearly spoke the word of God. But the good news is, while the wages of sin is death, the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God so loved the world that He sent His Son into the world to die as substitutes substitutionary death upon the cross. He raised them up three days later for those who would believe and receive God's gift of Jesus Christ in your place. The Bible says for those who received Him, to them He gave the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. See, that's the simplistic message of God to all of humanity. That is God's only plan. That is God's only way to find remedy for the problem of sin and separation from God. See, 
they shared the word of God. And the Bible says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They didn't share fancy, you know, discussions or opinions. They didn't try to share what they thought the world was coming to, what they thought was going on around them. They didn't try to have any conjecture as far as what this means or that means or what we think is going to happen. Are we sending in troops? Are we not? Are we going to covert operation? Is it special forces? Is it going to be televised on CNN? How is this all going to take place? What's going on? Hey, you know what? None of that matters as far as your relationship with God is concerned. Because whether we survive it or don't survive it, the reality is this, that you still will die and one day give an account to God for your life here on earth. See, we're so sidetracked by everything that's going on as I look at this and see this never, 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 never give in attitude of the apostles, of these missionaries. They were focused on one thing. They were in the world to preach Christ and Him crucified. Period. And they never got sidetracked from that mission. They spoke. They opened their mouth and they spoke the truth. The point of this as we go through this is very simple. When was the last time that you spoke of God's truth to a friend, to a family member, to a co-worker, to a teammate, to a classmate, to a neighbor who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? The recent events of the last two weeks has opened a tremendous door of opportunity for those who are seeking spiritual truth. As long as I live, there is no getting around this one truth. What or whom we are excited about, we cannot help talking about. It just keeps coming back to that. What we are excited about, we can't help talking about. Who we are excited about, we can't help telling people about. We see it all the time. I'm engaged. Ah, let me tell you about her. Let me tell you about him. Oh, let me tell you about my kids. We just had a baby. Let me tell you about him or her. Let me tell you about my grandchild, my grandchildren. Oh, let me tell you about my business. Let me tell you about my hobby. Let me tell you about, man, I am so excited. Let me tell you about what I'm excited about. Well, how often are we excited about the only person who has been given the only name under heaven by which man can be saved from the judgment and wrath of God for sin, isn't it about time we got a little excited about Jesus? As is so often the case as we look at this, having heard God's plan for man, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, many, but not all, believed. Notice in verse 2, there's a huge but. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, embittered them against the brethren. There's a huge contrast in thought here. And verse 2 lays it out very clearly. There were those who disbelieved. I want to explain this as clearly as I can so that there's no mistake about what I'm trying to say. The original Greek word translated refused to believe or disbelieved is also translated disobeyed. Now, to tie that together, let me explain a little further. In John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
This is the end of the passage that deals with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But it went on to say, for God didn't send the son into the world to judge the world, not that time, but that the world should be judged or saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. When? When Adam sinned, we were all judged and deemed to be sinners as he was. We were already condemned. So we were already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In Ephesians, it goes on to say that those who disobey. Very clearly, what the Bible teaches is this. Since God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You follow that? In Acts chapter 17, God is declaring that men everywhere should turn from sin, turn to God, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says this, that we are to be reconciled to God. That is not a suggestion. That is a command of God to all men everywhere that you repent from sin and turn back to God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. That is a command of God to every human being. When a person refuses to obey that command, they have disobeyed God just as Adam had disobeyed God when he did not do what God had commanded him to do, which was not eat of that particular apple from that particular tree. All of mankind is condemned before God because we are guilty in Adam. And then when we hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we repent from sin and turn to God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if and when a person doesn't do that, they are just showing that they are already disobedient and rebellious towards God anyway. And they are still condemned in their sin. He who believes has eternal life. He who does not believe does not. That's the message. Those who refused to believe were not content with their own disobedience of God. You hear people oftentimes say, well, if you can convince me, then I'll believe. And you have to ask the question, what is it that is causing you not to be convinced? And oftentimes what you'll find is that I heard all of that. You know you're a sinner. Well, I know that. Nobody's perfect. Great. We at least agree on that. Okay, do we agree that there's consequences to making wrong decisions? We see it every day in our life. If, you know, you're disobedient to commands or authority at your office, there's consequences. If you're disobedient to authorities in, in, in society, there's consequences. If your child disobedient to authority in your own home, there's consequences. If you as a human being are disobedient to God, there's consequences. What are the consequences? The wages of sin is death. We are spiritually separated from God. Physically, we die because of that. And we will be separated from him for all of eternity in a place that the Bible describes as where there is weeping and gnashing and mourning and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and nothing but suffering and misery and pain and no possibility of any type of reconciliation. That's the end result of that disobedience. Do you understand the consequences? Yes, I do. Do you understand that God's remedy is that he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross in your place, to raise him three days later from the dead, that he's able not only to forgive sin, but he's able to offer eternal life because he too is alive even to this day. 
Do you understand that? Well, yes, I understand that. Do you believe that? I've heard that, but I don't believe that. What part don't you believe? The part that I refuse to believe. And that is this. That I must surrender my will to God. There's no more convincing. There's no more evidence. There's no more conversation. There's really nothing else to discuss but to continue to pray for a hard-hearted person who knows the truth and yet refuses to receive that gift that God has to offer. See, we, we live in that world. I refuse to believe. It's not that I don't understand what you're saying I should believe. I just refuse to believe it. Wow. The hard heart. The stubborn sin nature of man. See, that's why salvation is only of God. Because only God can soften such a heart. See, these people refuse to believe, and you know what? They just weren't content to refuse to believe or disobey God's command on their own. You know what? They wanted to take all their friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and teammates and everybody they knew, they wanted to take them down to hell with them. They embittered them. The word embittered means poisoned. They poisoned the minds of the people in their community against Paul and Barnabas and the truth of God's word. They said, you can't believe them. Don't believe them. They're lying. All roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to forgiveness. All churches, all religions, all everything. It's all good. Not according to the word of God. There is one truth and everything else, as good as it's packaged, is a lie from the pit of hell. And it's a delusion from Satan. To delude man from believing and receiving the truth of God's word, he has put into question God's word from the very beginning when he whispered in Adam's ear, surely God didn't say what you think that he said. Surely you're not going to die. He doesn't want you eating the fruit because he doesn't want you to be just as smart as him. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what a re religious affiliation you have. As long as you're sincere or you make a good effort at it, that should be enough for God. According to our plans, but not God's word. They embittered their friends against them. They're narrow-minded. You know what? They're hateful. They're hate mongers because they're telling everybody else that everybody else except this way is right. They're a bunch of liars. Who do they think they are? And on and on it went and on and on it continues to go to this very day. How did Paul and Barnabas deal with such opposition? Don't forget, these men had an attitude of never, 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 never give in. You know what they did? They kept right on speaking boldly. They kept right on declaring the truth. For it's only the truth that can set people free from sin. They didn't back down. They didn't cower from any of it. They didn't turn away because of the opposition that was there. Everywhere they went, they were opposed. I think it's time that we begin to realize that everywhere we go, 
And everywhere we tell God's truth, it will be received by some gladly and rejected by others in a very fierce and opposing manner. Get it, understand it, and keep on going. Boldly proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. And notice this, in verse 3 it says, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. They didn't want to hear it, but they stayed there anyway. Why? Because they were answering to someone greater than the opposition or the opposing crowd. They had to answer to God because that was the message God had entrusted to them. That's the message God has entrusted to us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. So never, 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 never give in. That spunk that they had was always and has always been true of God's warriors. I love the story about John Wesley. John Wesley once encountered a village bully when their carriages met upon a narrow road. And the bully knew Wesley and disliked him for preaching the gospel. It says, and he wouldn't give him any leeway. He stood in the middle of the road and would not allow Wesley to pass, at which point Wesley cheerfully gave the man the entire road, even though he had to turn into a ditch and stand off to the side of the road. As this bully passed, he said, I never turn out for fools. And Wesley, all five feet, two of him, responded, well, I always do. (laughs) See, he reflected the words of Paul that he wrote of himself to the Corinthians in in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9, where he said this. We are hard pressed on all sides. He says, but we are never frustrated. We're puzzled, but we're never in despair. We're persecuted, but we're never deserted. We may be knocked down. But we are never knocked out. Is that great? Never, never, never give in. You know, boldness is that essential quality without which nothing significant can be accomplished for the gospel. Boldness is what enables believers to persist in the face of opposition. Nothing significant can be accomplished for the gospel until you and I become bold in our faith. Every one of the early preachers said the same thing. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. His constant prayer... As people say, hey, can I pray for you? Yeah, you know what you need to pray? You need to pray that I continue to boldly proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That's one prayer that we can all pray for one another, that we would be more bold in our preaching of Christ. Can you imagine what he was saying to the Thessalonians was this, you know, in Philippi, we really got our butts kicked. And I was thrown in prison, and you know what happened there. And I'm telling you what, man, it wasn't a pretty scene. But let me tell you something. Praise God and thank God that he continued to give us the boldness to proclaim the gospel because when we came to your town, you got to hear the truth of God's hope for all of mankind. If it would have been left up to us, we may have decided to take a little sabbatical, a little vacation, but God in his boldness in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he said, hey, you keep preaching the word. And so you, Thessalonians, are to be grateful that you just heard the word of God proclaimed through us because God in his boldness and boldness through us allowed us to be here today to be able to tell you how much he loves you. But to tell you also, you got a major problem of sin and you need to turn from it and you need to turn to Christ. 
Peter and John answered the Sanhedrin when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, if you remember from Acts 5, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. Boldness has been basic to reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to develop a never, 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 never get in, give in attitude, speak boldly the truth of God and expect division. When was the last time you opened your mouth in boldness? So many times in my own life, and I know it's probably true of many of you, there were many opportunities where the door was wide open and I shrunk back and cowered and didn't say what God had put on my heart to say. Only to, as I'm driving away or walking away, going, wow, that seemed like a perfect opportunity to talk about the things of God. And I chickened out. Can we pray for boldness today? To redeem the time wisely for such as a time as this, We, God's people, are strategically here to tell others about the consequence of sin and the wonderful forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Well, finally, if you look at this, the enemy, their enemies were divided, but the multitude of the city in verse 4 was divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with, with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of this. And they thought it would be wise to flee to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding region. I like this, you know. Paul and Barnabas were born again, not born yesterday. You know what I'm saying? It's like they're going to go, hey, you know what? Things are starting to pick up. There's a little heat here. And you know what? God does protect his people. But there's a time to say, it's time to move on. You know, it's time to move on to maybe a more uh, attentive audience. This audience was not that way anymore. They have been to -to back-to-back cities and had been thrown out of each one of them. And you know what? And they still weren't discouraged to the point of saying, you know what, maybe this is a bad idea. They went, hey, I know where we can go next. There's another city. And I'm thinking, man, you know what? You ever talk to somebody, they don't want to hear it anymore. I'm thinking, hey, you know what? There might be someone else you can think of to talk to next. Well, so this person doesn't want to hear it, but you know, I know somebody else in my office that may want to hear it. I know somebody else at school that may want to hear it. I know somebody else in our family who may want to hear it. I know somebody else. There's always somebody else to tell Jesus to. I mean, it's just like it's God's plan. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It doesn't matter. You don't want to hear it? You don't want to hear it? You don't want to hear it? I know somebody else that does. There's always somebody else. Because that's our purpose. That's our mission. We need to be optimistic. Paul was a realist, but he was also an optimist. I love this definition of an optimist. You may want to write this down. You may want to appreciate it for nothing, or you may not even enjoy it. But those are all the options that are out there. Okay. An optimist is described as an 85-year-old man who marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary school. (laughs) I like that. You know, you don't get all hung up about the facts and circumstances. You're just looking for the opportunities. See, Paul in Philippians again says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, he says, I can do everything, all things through Christ who gives me strength. And the context of that is specifically suffering because of telling others 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I learn when an audience is receptive, praise God. I learn when an audience is in opposition, and you know what? And they, they get a little bit excited, and they get a little bit hostile, praise God. If they don't want to hear it anymore, there's other people out there that do. You know what? That's not going to stop me. That can't stop me because that's what we're supposed to be doing. So he said, okay, we're out of Iconium, and now we go to Lystra. So we're making a little journey, and they're going to go about eight miles, and they go to the next city, and it's just a little town. There's nothing spectacular happen in this particular city. But as they go through it, notice what happens in verse 8 through 10. The Lyconians, where people had their own language, they were bar- barbarous in many ways. It was kind of an Old West flavor, Old West kind of a, a, a town. And uh, in 8 through 10, we read in at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. It says, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk, dispelling the myth once and for all that white man can jump and white man can dance. So there you go. But as we look at this, you know, as he was preaching publicly, he looked in the audience and he saw a specific look on someone's face. I like what Dr. Barnhouse said. He said this, there have been numerous times in my own ministry, says when while I was speaking from the pulpit, I have seen a response on some particular face in the audience. And I knew that the Holy Spirit had begun a work of grace in that person. It says, frequently after the meeting was over, the person would come to me and tell me that at that precise moment that he knew just knew that Christ had died for him and rose again for him and that he was truly born again. This past week, I had the opportunity to speak at a memorial service. Some of you may remember uh, Nathan Sharp. Nathan um, and his wife Tanya and their son Brandon about a year ago came up front and he de- they were dedicating uh, Brandon and themselves uh, to the Lord. And Nathan had uh, cancer. And uh, he had his shoulder and his arm amputated and God ended his misery and his suffering in the last week and decided that the verse in Proverbs or Psalms 116 is true, precious in the sight of the Lord as the death of his saints. And he called him home and he ended his suffering. And, and uh, as I was speaking on Wednesday and the place was packed with people that were there to, and number one, they were there, they thought, to show support. But I knew that they were there because God had a divine appointment for them to be there which was to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can relate to, as I have even here, looking out into an audience, a sea of faces, and seeing those who, frankly, can't wait to leave. I know how that goes. And seeing others who God is doing a work in your heart. And you can see it, and you can sense it. And so when I read this and see this, I understand that as Paul was looking, he saw a particular man, the Bible said, who had faith, faith to be healed. And fixing his gaze upon him, he said to him, stand up and walk. And he understood what God was doing because he was so in tune to how God And and it wasn't about him at all, but it was about what God was doing. And don't ever forget, as we look at these these, uh, events that take place in the book of Acts, they were always God's way. These signs, these miracles, these wonders that took place were always God's way of validating the authenticity of the message which they were proclaiming that there was salvation in no other name than that of Jesus Christ. 
That was always God's way of saying, hey, you can believe what they say. Today, we don't have to do that because we've got the Word of God. You can, as I share with you, you can at any time that you want spend time opening up the Word of God, studying the Word of God, seeking God's truth, seeing whether or not what I'm saying or not is actually what exactly it is that God has said. You know, the Bereans were more noble-minded, the Apostle Paul says, than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was telling them was the truth. See, you have that opportunity. I have that opportunity. When I hear somebody speak, it's one thing to have the Spirit of God saying, hey, you know what, that's right on. And it's another thing to validate it or confirm it or affirm it by reading and going, you know what, that's exactly what the message is. See, Paul saw this man's response. And a miracle took place, a sign that caused people to wonder what was going on. And it validated the message that salvation was in Christ and in Him alone. Have you ever wished that you could see such a miracle? I pray for such a miracle. When Nathan was sick, I prayed, God, you know what? Heal him. If that's your will, heal him. What a great testimony it would be. I mean, this man is going around telling everybody, you know what? Even though God chooses to slay me with cancer, so to speak, I still trust in him. Up to his very last breath. As he went into the hospital, he never denied, nor did, he ever, nor, nor did he ever question God's love for him and his relationship for him. He knew that he was born again by God. He knew that he was a new creature in Christ. He knew old things passed away and all things became new. And he knew the promises of God that laid ahead, that absent from the body, present with the Lord. But you know what? We pray that God would heal him. God chose not to do that. And that's God's prerogative. But we go, man, if there would have been a miracle, then maybe more people would believe. But you know the truth of miracles? Miracles basically are this. Not everyone that saw a miracle believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Not everybody saw Jesus Christ, Christ resurrected, put their faith and trust in Him. Not everybody that saw Jesus raise someone from the dead or open the eyes of the blind or the ears of the deaf, not everybody that saw those things put their faith and trust in Him. They wanted another one. They wanted to see more. Can you do that trick again? You know what Jesus said? Even if someone came back from the dead and told you this is real, He said, people wouldn't believe. And you know why He said they wouldn't believe? And here's the answer. He said, they already have the word of God. They don't believe God's word. Why are they going to believe the word of one who comes back from the dead? They already have God's word. Why are they going to believe the word of a doctor that says, this is a bona fide, categorized miracle. There's no other explanation. They already got God's word. Why would they believe that? See, even miracles cannot convince everyone. Even miracles cannot soften a rebellious and hard, calloused heart towards God. And here's my point. Only God's word can penetrate a hard heart. And God's word is his weapon of choice. You want to reach others with the gospel? Then present the word of God. Sow seed, Jesus said. And the seed is the word of God. And leave the convincing and the convicting to the Holy Spirit. Notice the response to this miracle. This will give you a good idea. 
Instead of what? Turning to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of the sins, they turned to Paul and Barnabas and started to worship him as gods. Notice this in verse 11. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, man, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language. They got so excited they started speaking in their own language. And saying the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, so you understand there was a legend at that time. And the legend was that Zeus and Hermes had come to this particular village. And had gone to a thousand different homes. And every home they were shut out. And they were, not, uh, they were not invited in. They were shown no hospitality. Until they got to the home of an older couple who were very poor. Owned very little. And yet opened the door. Invited them in. Gave them something to eat. Gave them somewhere to stay. And so the gods, so angry with the inhospitality of the people that were there. Struck them down and killed them all, except the old couple whom they turned their little cottage into a huge castle. And that was the legend. So from that legend, that was the explanation of why all these people had died years before. Is that, you know, they had got wiped out with a plague because they were not hospitable to the gods. So now this happens and they're going, hey, we're not going to get wiped out again. So they're going, hey, the gods have come back again, giving us another chance to make this all right. And so this is what's happened. And they're looking at this going, the gods have become like men, have come down before us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus, who was the more dignified one, probably the elder one, and Hermes, who was the spokesperson person because he was the chief speaker. And, and Paul and Barnabas were like, going, what in the world's going on? We don't understand Lyconian. And they're all going crazy. What's happening here? Well, what happens is the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the gods. It was the responsibility of the priest to lead the people in offering sacrifices to the gods. When this dude showed up with a wagon filled with stuff, they went, wait a minute. Now we know where this is heading and this isn't good. And so another characteristic of those who have a never, 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 never give in attitude, not only boldness, but also humility. No matter how great they thought of what happened, notice what he did here. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes, rushed out in the cry, crying out, Wait a minute! Why are you doing these things? We're just men the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you turn from such foolish beliefs. That you turn from all these little gods that you've made up to the true one living God. And they go on to explain the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's a very good um, um, uh, tactic here, so to speak. When we're reaching out to people who have no biblical knowledge, no biblical history, no biblical background, you know what? You probably don't want to quote chapter and verse. Because they already have a problem trying to understand, well, why do you believe the Bible? You've got to go explain the reliability, the trustworthiness, the authenticity of it, why you should put your faith and trust in what the Bible has to say, why it's reliable. Man, you're starting from scratch. What he was saying to these people is this. Hey, look. Look around you. The God who made everything, every human being, Romans 1 says, all they've got to do is look around at creation and go, you know what? There's order to the universe. There must be a first cause or a creator. This just didn't happen. And all the foolish nonsense that's out there, what has destroyed and made very difficult the gospel in our culture, is teaching evolution that all this stuff just happened. It's very easy when you go back to the first cause that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When you go back to that, then you can start to talk about what God's plan was, how man failed, what God's remedy is, and now how they can turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. See, they started with what they already knew. Look around you. There is a God. He made everything. And I want you to be introduced to him instead of this nonsense that you make up. You people know you made up these gods. 
You made them up. You created them. You invented them. How could you be afraid of them? Are you crazy? You carve little things out of trees. And then you worship them. Then you're afraid of them. You made them. They don't even, they're not real. Think about what you're doing. We want to, hey, you want to fear God? Fear the one who made the tree that you just carved a little thing out of. Let's get back to the beginning. That's why the doctrine of creation is so important to laying a foundation for an understanding that God exists. That he's real. They were humble. What they were saying was, hey, you know what? We're just men like you. And yet he didn't leave himself without a witness. And that he did good, gave you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Hey, God is testifying to the world that he exists. They humbly deflected all the attention from them back to God. And ultimately, they would have explained the gospel, but these people didn't want to hear it. And there's two things that jumped at me from that. Number one is this. They were people who didn't want to receive the God that they were being introduced to on the terms by which he was being introduced to them. They wanted to receive that God on their own terms. Listen to me. Jesus Christ... The world wants to receive him on their terms and not his terms. Who is Jesus Christ? He is an angel. He is a great philosopher. He is a psychologist. He is a great teacher. He is a humanitarian. He is a good man. He is a good person. But God does not allow that as an option. I like what... Josh McDowell has to say in one of his books, a chapter that's called Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. That is the only option that we have in answering the question, who is Jesus Christ? He is the Lord God who he claims to be, or he is a liar who deceives people and knew that he was a liar, or worse yet, he was a lunatic that told people what he thought to be true and believed in himself but was deluded by his own insanity. The only option given to man is that he is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And that's why it's so important to address that question in your own heart. Jesus turned to Peter one day and said, Who do people say that I am? You're a great guy. You're a prophet. You're a teacher. You're even John the Baptist reincarnated. Oh, really? Who do you say that I am? You are Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, He who has come into the world to save us from our sin. And you know what Jesus said at that point? Oh, no, 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 I never claimed to be that. I'm just a good guy. He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for man did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ never denied that he is the savior of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father but through me. We must accept Jesus Christ on his terms and not on ours. Anything less is blasphemy and denying that he is God. And it's a rejection of the plan of God for man. The second thing that jumped out of the page is how quickly man is to want to elevate men into somehow a godlike status. We worship men. We hear it all the time. 
You know, what church you go to? I go to so-and-so's church. Oh, really? What do you do? Oh, I do this. I do that. You know, we, got, we, got people, we quote people all the time, but we can never quote a passage from the Bible. You know what so-and-so said the other day? Really? Well, they said, oh, where did they get that? I don't know. just sounded good. Hey, can you ever, you know, actually quote a passage? Can you find one? You know, I mean, that's good. I like the, and I don't mean that, you know, trying to be mean. I'm just trying to make a point, man. It's like, you know, you know, get the tabs if you have to, you know, start somewhere. But we should get a little more familiar with the words in this book because in, these, in this book are the words of eternal life. Truth. You know, turn to it and go, wow, this is great. I know somebody talked to me and said, man, a year ago, you'd start turning stuff. I'd be like, I don't know where nothing is. And it'd be like, but now it's like, I know where stuff is. This is so great. And the only reason she knows where stuff is now is because she spent time reading it. It's an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> you might want to check into it sometime. But anyway, so as we look at this, even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the multitudes. These guys came, they followed them. Think about it, it's from Antioch, the previous two cities, and Iconium. They've been following them, just waiting for a chance to get enough people together to stone these guys. That's how much they hated them. They followed them there. They won over the multitudes. They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city. They supposed him to be dead. Now, you want to talk about never, 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 never give in attitude? Now, check this out. But while the disciples stood around them, just going, wow, and I'm sure they were praying, and I'm sure they're going, wow, man, he's a mess. You know, what are we going to do? He got up. He got up, and he's all dirty and muddy and sweaty and caked with blood and bleeding and battered and bruised. And he looked at him and said, let's go back into town. <laughs> what? Let's go back into town. We're not done here yet. Now, I'll tell you what, it reminds me of a story of a pastor that I heard of not long ago in Columbia. A Colombian pastor who was standing at the pulpit, he was preaching the word of God, and someone walked in the door with a gun and told him to shut up and stop reading from the Bible. And he just kept on reading. Everybody, all you people, hit the floor. I already know to expect it when it happens. So, y'all going to duck so that you get a clear shot. And, and they all ducked, man. They all ducked and hit the floor. And the guy just pops off two shots. One goes, boom. Another goes, boom. Another goes into the front of the pulpit. Another goes in the side of the pulpit. He shoots six shots, misses the guy with all six of them. Not because he was trying, he just missed. And the gun was empty and he turned and he walked out. Now all these people start popping their heads up like those gophers at Chuck E. Cheese. You know? And they all start popping up. And they all sit back down. He just kept on with his message. And you know what? Not one person knew a passage or verse he was preaching on that day. But let me tell you something. Not one person missed the message, though. Never, never, never give in. To the temptation to not proclaim boldly the word of God. In conclusion, their example of boldness Humility and, oh, by the way, persistence. Their personal call to commitment. Boldness, humility, persistence. Their personal call to commitment is reminiscent of the sentiment that was expressed by Theodore Roosevelt on April 10th, 1899, as he delivered a speech in Chicago, Illinois. And I'll close with these words. He said, it is not the critic who counts, 
Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of the deeds could have done them better. It says the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming who does not actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, he at least fails while daring greatly. It says, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Where is your life lived? In the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat? If so, my challenge to you as it is to me is that it's time to dare mighty things for the Lord's sake. For we must redeem the time wisely. For we know not what tomorrow brings. But each day has enough trouble of its own. It's time we dare mighty things. For the Lord's sake. Heavenly Father, we are just in awe of people who are brave and gallant. Persistent and bold. Who speak out for your truth. And I can't help but think of Paul and Barnabas and just that scene at the stoning of Paul and how he stood up and dusted himself off and marched back into town. The testimony of such an action, the message that was proclaimed by his life, probably spoke volumes compared to the words sometimes that we use. God, I pray that each one of us would live our faith in such a way that when we speak, there can be no denying what we say. Lord, may we become men and women who develop an attitude of never, 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 never give in to the temptations of becoming silent at the expense of the gospel. May we dare to be people who attempt mighty things for your sake and for your glory. Amen.